Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing all Star Trek comic books ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 23 for November 24th, 2010. Yeah, so this is our last full Pike episode. Or as I remembered him being in it, but we'll see that maybe he he isn't quite the starring role that I remembered in these two books. Right. And they are two very interesting. Yeah, so these are the first two annuals that were released by DC Comics on their first volume of Star Trek. Volume 1, annual number 1, came out in 1985, and I don't know what month it was. And then number 2 came out in 1986. Correct. And I didn't find uh, months for either one of them when I looked through it, but... Yeah, they're not on there, so usually... Uh, I think they come out in the summer. The annuals normally come out in the summer, but I have no way of knowing. So Yeah, not a big deal uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, they're also cool because they're bookends. So the beginning of the Kirk years and the end of the Kirk years. Of his first five-year mission. Yes. So basically bookmarking the original series, TV series. Bookending, right yes. Yep. Exactly. I agree. And I thought they were pretty cool. Uh, they were. They were. But uh, I guess we'll get into more of that when we actually get into the issues. Exactly. So, saying that, let's just jump straight in. So, Star Trek, DC Comics, annual number one, entitled All Those Years Ago, uh, 1985. So, the writers was Mike W. Barr, Marv Wolfman, and Dave Cockrum were the co-plotters. Uh, co Artist was David Ross. Inking was Bob Smith. Uh, colors by Carl Gafford, and letters by Augustin Maz, and the editor was Mike W. Barr. So I guess he wrote it and edited it, so that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool, as long as he knows what he's doing. And I, I think he does, because this one, yeah. I think he did a lot of research on, or he was a fan. Right. It's just kind of good to have a second opinion, uh, just in case the original writer gets a little off in the weeds. The right. editor can sometimes get him back on track and... Well, that's why, Chop you get, out stuff. that's why you get Marv Wolfman and Dave Cockrum in there to kind of keep him in line. Well, what is a co-plotter, anyway? Maybe we can talk about that later, but... Uh, I think they basically, maybe they come up with the story, and then one person kind of flushes it out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the way I've always thought it was. Okay, so uh, we'll go ahead and get started then. So, uh, just to kind of go over the cover right quick, it's just kind of a couple headshots of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Some weird little purple alien in the background. Um, a sun in the far background, and then swooping across the sun is a picture of the old-style Enterprise. So this issue came out in 1985, so we would be about a year until Star Trek IV came out. So these came out after Star Trek III and before Star Trek IV. So, and this actually, the this, this story starts during uh, in that time frame. So Spock is back to life, but they haven't gone back and done the events in Star Trek 4. So since we're kind of reading them out of order, you know, obviously DC Comics didn't know what ultimately was going to be in Star Trek 4. So obviously Star Trek 4 actually picked up right after Star Trek 3. So there's this like whole 
several ep- issues uh, of the comic book series, which depicts other adventures uh, that could have happened between Star Trek three and four, with uh, Spock being captain of his own ship and Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk being captain of the Excelsior. So, just a little bit about background there on what what you would have gotten if you were reading the. Uh, the monthly comic book up until this point. Uh, I think Spock's ship is actually called the Surak, and it's a Oberth class ship, so similar to one that we saw in, in Star Trek Three. All right, so enough background. Back to the story. So it starts off with the uh, two ships, the uh, Surak and the Excelsior, rendezvousing in space based on some mysterious Starfleet orders. Uh, and Spock goes ahead and transports over to the Excelsior. He's greeted by Scotty, and they proceed to the conference room where most of the Enterprise cast is in attendance. So we see Kirk, Sulu, McCoy, Uhura, and Savick. So at this point, Savick is the normal Excelsior uh, science officer. So uh, Kirk goes ahead and plays the message that Starfleet sent him, and it's an alien language of the Tarl Mani. So Spock translates this, uh, this alien language as the sentence, We are coming. Kirk informs Spock that their orders are to investigate the trial Manny, <laughs> since they are the only crew to ever make contact with them. They need to know if the trial Manny's intentions are peaceful or otherwise. Savick states that she's never heard of the story. McCoy starts to tell the story of the Enterprise's first mission, but he, he relents and allows Kirk to tell the story, since he's the one that got them all together. Thus starts a flashback. So uh, imagine little wavy lines as we go back in time. (laughs) All right, so now we see Captain Kirk in the command chair of the USS Saladin, and it is returning to Earth from its deep space mission. As they approach, Kirk sees the Enterprise in orbit for the very first time and instantly falls in love with it. He opens up a communication link to the Enterprise and has a brief conversation with Captain Pike about the upcoming handoff ceremony, and Kirk requests permission to go ahead and board now and take a sneak peek. Pike uh, Pike leaves the bridge to greet Kirk, and a blonde man, uh, who I thought was Tyler from the uh, Pike era stories, but uh, he's uh, actually ID'd as being Kelso, so I'm assuming Kelso must have been the navigator in Where No Man Has Gone Before. He He's at the helmsman station in this yeah. issue. Okay. Well, anyway, so this blonde guy named Kelso and Sulu have a whispered conversation. Basically, Kelso's basically saying Kirk has a lot of nerve to beam over before Pike has even stepped down. So we see Pike beaming over, and Pike introduces him to Scotty. Uh, Kirk informs Scotty that they have a lot in common, since he himself was an assistant engineer aboard the Farragut. Next, Pike introduces Kirk to Kirk's future first officer, number one, and his future science officer, Mr. Spock. While they're making introductions, a large container that Spock and number one were working on breaks loose and actually falls on number one. Uh, Boyce is able to save her, however, but her legs are severely crushed, and she will be out of commission for quite some time. Kirk is now faced with finding a new first officer. Boyce also is seen complaining or basically explaining how he's looking forward to his upcoming retirement. So now we get a scene where Pike and Kirk are um, basically talking about the pitfalls of promotion, and Pike actually recommends that Spock would be a good replacement for number one. Kirk states that he already has a candidate in mind, and they go ahead and toast for both of them seeking out what they want. I'm surprised they didn't put in a little scene where Kirk well I guess they did kind of Kirk 
Kirk did tell Pike that he couldn't understand how he would allow himself to get promoted. Right. Which is a scene that they play all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So uh, back on Earth, McCoy uh, is established as some kind of country doctor and uh, in some sort of private hospital. It's definitely not Federation. He gets a summons from Starfleet, and he just quits his job, just just reads this, reads this document, quits his job, and heads off to the Enterprise because Captain Kirk has done it. Uh, then we get a shot of Ahura, and she's preparing to leave because uh, she's going to be the new communications officer for the Enterprise, and she's speaking with her boyfriend. He states that she should not leave and proposes with the ring and everything. She declines, stating that her career must come first, but she says that she'll wait for him. He gets very upset, throws the ring, and tells her not to bother because he's not going to wait for her. We then get a flash to Wrigley's Pleasure Planet, where we see Gary Mitchell is rudely awakened uh, while he's on some sort of leave. He complains but changes his tune when he hears the message that Kirk has chosen him to be his new first officer. So we flash back to Kirk and McCoy having a conversation in Kirk's apartment on Earth. McCoy has doubts about leaving Earth. He recalls that his divorce has just gone through and that his daughter will soon be graduating college. He recommends that perhaps Kirk should take Dr. Piper instead. Kirk basically talks him into it and about that time Mitchell comes in and joins them. After some introductions, Mitchell asks why Kirk did not promote uh, Mr. Spock. Kirk tells him that he needed someone there he could trust. Spock is also having a similar meeting with Pike, and they have a conversation about their opinions on Kirk himself. Uh, Spock tells Pike that uh, he has valued Pike almost as much as a father figure and gives him an IDIC medallion, which stands for Infinite Diversity and in Infinite Combinations. So we flash to the handoff ceremony. All the crew is meeting each other, uh, sometime, some of them for the first time. McCoy and Spock have a few barbs, with uh, Spock stating that McCoy's true calling would be wielding a shovel instead of a scalpel, after McCoy states that everyone has feelings if you dig deep enough. Uh, the ceremony continu uh, continues, and it basically consists of Pike returning a, uh, a sword, an actual sword, to Admiral Nagoya, and then Nagoya then gives the sword to Captain Kirk, and this symbolizes the passing of the command. A short time later, the Enterprise is leaving Earth for the, for the last time for the next five years. Kirk goes to visit Pike in uh, his quarters, and we find out that Pike is actually uh, a passenger on, on the ship because Kirk's first mission is to drop Pike off at his first posting as fleet captain. So uh, while they're talking, Kelso uh, calls the captain to the bridge and accidentally asks for Pike and then corrects himself and asks for Kirk. So a little slip of the tongue. It seems that the Enterprise has encountered an alien vessel. They try to hail it, but no one uh, is able to understand the language. Pike, who seems to be eavesdropping, because Pike's still in his cabin, yet he's listening to everything that's going on the bridge, recognizes the alien language and rushes to the bridge to warn Kirk. Spock states that they are being scanned, almost as if the aliens are looking for someone specific. Just then, Pike comes through the turbolifts and tells them that he knows who they are and not to attack. The aliens then fire some sort of energy beam that actually pierces the shields, and Pike is seen engulfed in this crazy light and actually just vanishes. Uh, the alien ship then takes off. The uh, Enterprise cannot keep up because the, sh the alien ship is actually going at warp 17. 
Kirk then goes to Pike's quarters to try to find some uh, some clue as to what he meant when he said he knew who they were, and starts reading Pike's diary, which I was surprised Pike would keep a diary since he already keeps all these captain's logs. But oh well. He requests that Mitchell and Spock meet him in the uh, in the cabin to go over their findings. Kirk then starts to read the story from Pike's diary, and we get yet another flashback. So this is a flashback within a flashback, which would be maybe a flash sideways. I don't know. So Double flash. Uh, yeah, I guess so. So now we're uh, in, in the past. Uh, Pike is actually commander of the Enterprise at this time, and April is the captain. So uh, we see Pike. He's in command of the bridge because uh, April is under the weather. The Enterprise is recording the star Draxus II that's about to go supernova in the next few years. An alien fleet then arrives. Pike tries to warn them about the radiation. The only response he gets is an untranslatable alien language. As a solar flare belches up from the sun and is about to engulf these alien ships, uh, Pike orders the tractor beam and actually pushes these uh, alien ships out of the way of solar flare. And then they just break away and head off. Uh, we get back to Kirk reading the diary, and Kirk orders that the ship head to Draxus II in hopes that the aliens would have returned there. When they arrive at Draxus, they find the huge alien fleet there, and they've built some sort of radiation net that's actually uh, somehow keeping the harmful radiation from the star at bay. Mitchell suggests that they go in there guns ablazing as a sign of force. Kirk disagrees and gets Scotty to rig up the transporters so that they can actually beam through the alien shields. As Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are beaming over, Scotty warns them that the star is going to go Nova in two hours. The away team find themselves in a huge alien antechamber uh, with large spheres hanging up throughout the room. Uh, they spot Pike. He's trussed up in some chains, kind of like a Hercules in some of those old... Uh, Lou Ferrigno Hercules movies Just then the aliens spot them McCoy stuns the first one And then they're swarmed by hundreds Of these uh, purplish aliens uh, Kirk is ordering them To return back to the ship But neither of them do And they are brought up to the podium where Pike is Spock then reveals that he can actually speak the alien language Thanks to a mind meld That he performed on the stunned alien That McCoy had shot Pike is then released from the chains, and they are ushered through the ship. Spock explains that Pike's actions to save the ship all those years ago actually prevented them from getting the needed radiation to, that they needed to survive. They have been combing the galaxy for Pike because they want him to be there when the Nova destroys their whole civilization. Uh, Spock proposes that if he and McCoy can fix the radiation shielding to absorb and filter all the radiation from the Nova, that they will be able to return the aliens to a healthy state. Uh, they are able to do so, and when the Nova happens, it, it, it does give them the needed radiation, and they actually shed their skins and become a different-looking type of alien. The crew then asks them if they would like to uh, try to join the Federation. Or actually, no, the, um, the aliens basically say that they cannot join the Federation until they've been able to put their own society back together. He does vow to return someday to repay them for what they have done. The crew beam back to the Enterprise, and I assume they continue their trip back to Babel to drop him off, assuming that Babel is his first uh, uh, mission as fleet captain, as we saw in the IDW continuity. Uh, we then return to the present, where Kirk is finishing his story, 
and they are contemplating the motives of the aliens when the alien fleet arrives. Spock beams back to his ship, but not before he and Savick somehow were able to program the alien language into the universal translators. So he, they must have done that awfully quick. Or maybe they just weren't paying attention to Kirk's story and were doing it while he was chatting it up. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Kirk uh, opens up communications and requests that the two races begin a friendly negotiation. The Traumanian refuse until they've had a chance to apologize for their previous actions, which they do, and now they're able to make preparations to join the Federation. The end. What a happy ending. So these are annuals, so they're a little lengthy. Yes. But uh, I thought this one moved really, really well. It didn't feel like you were, you know, the movie or the story flowed pretty well, I thought. It did, and um, and there was just so many good nuggets of like origin story because this is what this is. I mean, it's mostly an origin story. There's so many good nuggets that, uh, in many cases, dovetail nicely with what with what we see in the original TV series. Not in all cases, though. Uh, I, I thought that was all like, oh, that's how that got that way. Yeah. I, I I found all that really interesting. I found that part of it much more interesting than the whole thing with the uh, Tralmani. Oh, really? I, I didn't mind the Tralmani. I thought that was a good excuse to tie in. The old Pike, you know, back when he was commander, and and introduce April, you know, kind of give him a nod, and then also then tie in with, you know, the original series Trek, and then the movie series Trek. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I I, I don't want to say that I didn't like the story. I'm just saying I found the origin story half of it much more interesting than the Tralmani thing. No, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, the Tralmani thing was really only a, a story thread to kind of tie these these you know, different eras together. Yeah. And that was interesting seeing three distinct eras in time uh of the Star Trek canon uh described in the same story. Yep. And I thought like you said, they really did their homework on this one because I mean they, they I think they did their homework on this much better than they did for like even the the new movie that just came out. I mean, because, you know, there was no Chekhov, because Chekhov didn't show up until season two, so he right. wouldn't have been there for the first season. Right. And they, you know, they, as you mentioned off-air, the, the whole Dr. Piper thing. Right. So, as we know from Where No Man Has Gone Before, uh, second pilot, first episode with Kirk, there was certain people in that episode, like Kelso, and there were certain people not in that episode, like McCoy. So, how did Dr. Piper get out, or come in, and how did McCoy leave if McCoy was originally on the ship before the events that took place in Where No Man Has Gone Before? Yeah, so I'm just assuming that, you know, because they mentioned that the graduation of his daughter was coming up, that yep. maybe after this mission, but before Where No Man Has Gone Before, he somehow takes a shuttle back to Earth to see the graduation, and then comes back for the uh, second episode, which I think was Charlie X. Is that the next one? Well, if you talk about the airing de- airing order, I'm pretty sure that Mantrap was the first episode. Right. But, yeah, I was thinking more of continuity line. Yeah. Yeah, um, Charlie X might have been the second one. But if you look at Mantrap, that's a little rough, too. But, I don't know. Yeah, I, but, I'd have to go back and look at the. At the but list McCoy's order. definitely in Man Trap. Oh yes, he was a big part of Man Trap. Yeah. Hold on anyway, one, so one uh, yeah, so 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 they 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 did lay down uh, 
the likely explanation of where McCoy was in their conversations, but they don't actually come out and say it. So, right. But I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's why. I th- I'm sure that's what explained it. So remind me in in where no man has gone before, and I think Sulu doesn't actually show up to like episode three or four of the original series, right? That's another good one. I mean, I I do not recall him being in at all in where no man has gone before. Yet he's sitting there right next to Kelso. Uh, interestingly enough. In the in the navigational sec, uh, station, while Kelso is the uh, helmsman. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Kelso was replaced by Chekhov in season two. Maybe he was in more than just one episode. He was in one episode because he was killed in uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Is he? He was in that 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 magical uh, cable that came up behind him and and, tra- and strangled him. Oh really? I I, I don't remember that. I, you know, it's been a long no. time since I saw that. Uh, well. There's a lot of episodes I've only I haven't seen in a long time, but where No Man Has Gone Before was always like my number one, two uh, episodes of all time. So I really like that one. I've seen that one before. Right, but but back to Sulu. I mean, there's nothing in when he first appears. He he never says this is my first mission. I mean, he could have always <laughs> been, you know, he might have been on the the B schedule. Yeah, it could be the night schedule. Episodes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then when yeah. Kelso died, he got promoted to. Uh, the, the, the day schedule <laughs> Exactly Another thing about staffing When Mitchell comes in I, I don't remember him being first officer in, in where no man has gone before I mean he yeah. was there Definitely no two ways about it He was in the navigational position Navigator's right. position That's right I just don't remember him being number one But apparently he was according to this Well yeah Or at least that was the original intent Um I've mentioned before, there's a couple of other books called My Brother's Keeper, mm-hmm. which kind of deals with Kirk and Mitchell's friendship throughout mm-hmm. their, you know, their their Starfleet years and then their first years uh, on different ships and then uh, them being together on Enterprise. And if I'm not mistaken, those books, Kirk wanted him to be the first officer and was really pushing forward uh, him to be the first officer, but Starfleet declined because he was, you know, a little headstrong or he was too headstrong and uh Starfleet didn't allow it to to go through even though he was, you know, a member of the crew, but he wasn't allowed to be first officer. Huh. And he had like resentment towards that. But I might be misremembering those books, but I'm pretty sure that was one of the plot lines. That would that would help explain it because he is pretty uh quick on the draw when they uh first come into contact with the uh Trelmani. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. You're, you're talking about a, a an alien race that had somehow built a net around a whole sun, and can travel at warp seventeen, <laughs> and can somehow you know penetrate your shields, and you think you're going to be able to go in there and take out their whole fleet? Exactly, one <laughs> ship versus one ship. like hundreds or whatever. <laughs> it looks like they got a lot of ships. Yeah, I wanted Kirk to go. Really? That's your recommendation number one? Come on. <laughs> Try hey, again. Kick our ass. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as all the you know the reoccurring characters from Pike's era, number one I thought was a little disappointing that they would just have a legs. box fall on her and she's suddenly out for the count. Well, that's how they got rid of her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it was expeditious, but yeah, they spent no time on her at all. Yeah, she's like, oh, this is number one, and he's and he's like, oh yeah, number Smash. one. We have a lot in common. Crush. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we had a lot in common. Look out, it's a trap. Smash. Well, he was brown-nosing, yeah. wasn't he? Every time, everybody he oh, talked he was. to was like, oh, hey, we got a lot in common. Exactly. <laughs> in regards to the brown-nosing thing, I didn't... I don't remember them ever saying Kirk rose from the engineering department. I, I about the same. Th- I was going to say the same thing. Oh, oh not really? quite the same way. But I was, I was going to start to go through uh, Kirk's resume, which we find out a lot about in this uh, this issue. Yeah. So, so go yes, ahead. I, I had no idea he came up through engineering. Uh, I didn't know he was on the Farragut. Cool. Uh, he was also the first officer on the El Dorado. You know, another little resume tidbit. Uh, you get to learn all things about. About Kirk's career in this episode, and then and then he was captain of the Saladin when they when oh they Saladin right exactly yeah. yeah that was my first note which I'd never heard of before I never heard of that never show. heard of the Saladin but I've either. heard of the Farragut sure sure in the in the original series as well as in the movie uh, uh Star Trek Eleven that last movie what happened to the Farragut in Star Trek Eleven um I think that's where they wanted to assign Ohura until she put her womanly foot down with Spock. oh that's right that's right. And I, then you're going, I, I love know. that. I love that in the movie because it's like, how did she do that? How does she have that much influence over Spock? Which we find out later. She had a relationship. That's all I'm going to say. It, well, do you really think that would be a spoiler for anybody at this point? <laughs> I was going to say something probably a little bit worse, but uh, <laughs> I guess I toned it down right at the last minute. Speaking of Ahura, uh when she's with her boyfriend and getting the engagement ring and stuff, yeah, Noyota is her first name, which, you know, I know they said it in Star Trek Eleven on the transporter pad. Right. But I really couldn't understand her when she said it. And then and then when Kirk says it, I, I can hear it clearer, but it never sunk in. So when I'm reading this thing and I see Noyota is her is her, her first name, it's like, oh, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I never knew that before. And then it's like, oh, no, I did from Star Trek Eleven, but... Yeah, but it's never mentioned in any of the other movies or TV shows. But it is stated that uh, I think she came she came up with the name. So she basically oh, really was she named herself Nichelle Nichols. Is that her, that's her name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nichelle Nichols. She she was the one who came up with the name because I guess uh, they never gave her a first name. They only called right. her Ahura, and then she basically asked, you know, what what's my name? Yeah. So Gene Roddenberry, and he was like, I don't know what. What do you want it to be? <laughs> and uh, she she said something about uh, Ahura was like Swahili for freedom or something. And mm-hmm. so then she picked uh, Nyota because it was uh, meaning love or something. I can't remember. But it was – or stars or something like that. It was had another Swahili meaning, and that's why she picked it. I wonder – if it was really that she used her womanly ways with Roddenberry to get the name, the first name that. You mentioned that before, that they had some sort of relationship. I'd never heard that's that before. That's what Nichelle Nichols says. They had a little uh, a little thing going on for a certain period of time. Is that right? I never heard that. That's what, that's what she says. That's now, what she says. And that's obviously before he started dating uh, Margelle Barrett? That's a very interesting question. I don't know for sure. But it was supposedly a little... Very short-lived thing, and I'm not sure which order things went in. But I do know that Roddenberry said something about <laughs> uh, replacing, having Spock become the first officer, Leonard Nimoy and Spock as Spock becoming the first officer, and then marrying number one, because he really couldn't do it the other way around. So uh, 
So say that again. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, 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 okay. I, okay. So Roddenberry. So said... so Roddenberry says two things they didn't like about Star Trek. Uh, is, uh, on the first pilot is they didn't like a, a woman uh, second in command, and they didn't like an alien. Okay. Okay. So he ended up relenting on the female first officer, and then taking uh, Nimoy as Spock because he couldn't do it the other way around. So, marry Leonard Nimoy and keep Majel Barrett in, in, in this show. Okay. Badly explained, but that's what he supposedly said. It's just kind of a funny thing. So, anyway, so uh, apparently it was through Star Trek that uh, Majel Barrett and Roddenberry uh, had gotten together. Yeah, I always, exactly, I always kind of assumed that, but... But exactly when the Uhura, or the Nichelle Nichols things happened is interesting, because obviously she didn't come along until, well, the regular series. Yeah. Not the original pilot. So, I'm definitely not misremembering the the naming of Ahura, <laughs> which is what got us on this tangent. <laughs> oh, oh, cool, cool. But yeah, I hadn't heard that story before. But that's that's cool. Yeah. Why not? Why not let the actor to pick it? Right, especially if you're never going to mention it on screen. Exactly. Pike's quarters are ridiculously huge, <laughs> and what's with that with that glass wall facing backwards so you can see the nacelles and stuff? I mean, Pike says. Okay, Kirk and I are going to go to my quarters to have a drink, which sounds a little funny, quite frankly, but that's what he said. And then the next scene, you're in this huge room that looks more like a rec deck or something. So I was kind of impressed with, uh, although it made no sense, that uh, that his quarters would be so huge. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice the nacelles behind them, but but yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a 10 forward, but in the, the back of the ship. In the back of the ship, right? I mean, the um, and and it's a it's a, a multi-story glass wall. Yeah. So it's like, wow, you know, it's good to be the captain, but. Well, now his and Kirk's comments later, when 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 Kirk goes to visit him at his, you know, temporary quarters, and he's like, "Hey, if you want your your captain's quarters back, you can have them." And you know, and I'm thinking, well, this room looks pretty big. What's he talking about? It looks like a normal room. Mm-hmm. But now that you say that, yeah, I'd want that big room back too. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure that's not? Does he say that's his his room, his normal quarters? Oh, it says my cabin. Yep, you're right. And he offers yeah. Boyce to go with him. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Kirk and I go. Ooh, three way. Uh, Kirk and I are going to my cabin for a drink. Care to join us? us? And he has both of his arms on Boyce's shoulders. Yeah, They're see, like yeah. almost in, uh, almost an embrace, and then Boyce is like, uh, n- "Not now, uh, thanks." <laughs> okay, end of the bromance insinuations. <laughs> uh, but still, look at the size of that room. Wow, nah, you're tr- you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a sweet room. And if you remember to the original pilot, Pike's quarters are nothing. They're really small. Well, Kirk's yeah, Pike's quarters were really tiny, and but they were, and that was smaller than than Kirk's quarters later. But Kirk's quarters, quarters later weren't nearly that big. No, 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 no. Picard has nicer quarters, but the whole uh, Enterprise D actually had a budget to make it nice. Yeah, everything was nicer on that one. They didn't have to bunk up with people like they do. You know, remember in Star Trek Six, I think it shows crew members in their, their bunks, and there's like three bunk beds per room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. that would suck. That would, but if you're uh, lower on the rungs, yeah, I why guess not? So. We're going to save room for uh, other stuff. So uh, Wrigley's Pleasure Planet, uh, that was mentioned, and, and we see that uh, Gary Mitchell's there. 
Um, was that ever shown in the original series? I know that it I've... was mentioned a time or two, but I can't remember it ever being seen. Well, I don't remember ever being mentioned in, in the original TV series, but I do know it's been mentioned several times in the comic books. Right. Now I'm pretty sure it was mentioned in, in an episode where, where um, it might have even been the man trap when um, when they were seeing those, you know, the salt vampires for different women. Right. And I think one guy said, hey, that, that girl looks like somebody I met on Wrigley's Pleasure Planet. And I always assumed, you know, because I grew up with Next Generation in the movies before I started watching the TV series. Mm-hmm. That, that was kind of like the original series version of Riza. Right, exactly. Uh, you you could be right. I just I just don't recall it before. Because I see Wrigley and I think Wrigley Field, Cubs, yes. Great <laughs> pleasure is had there, but... Not the same way. I, I always think of Wrigley's uh, spearmint gum because of those commercials. <laughs> double your pleasure, double your Exactly. Product. There you go. That could be. <laughs> no, that, that came way later. But, but one little comment, and it's more of a snarky comment, but when Mitchell was woken up there at Riza and he's mm-hmm. wearing uh, some tidy whiteies, mm-hmm. uh, I made a little note that I'm glad to see Fruit of the Loom is still in business in the 23rd century. Perhaps I should buy some stock. Perhaps you should. <laughs> Yes, uh, no European Speedos for our boys. Or just the, you know, the nice boxers. Boxers. There you go. That's <laughs> but right. then, I, then I started thinking, I was like, I guess you never see him wearing... Well, Kirk in the new movie is wearing boxers, isn't he? He's not wearing tidy whities When he and the Orion girl get interrupted by Hora. I don't think he's got boxers on. I, I, I would have to go back and look again, but I don't think he's got boxers on. Yeah. I was just thinking, I was like, I don't think they ever showed what well, they they're not underneath uh, their clothes. No, I don't think so. Anyways, I don't think so either. And that doesn't but, really matter, does it? It doesn't. It's a bit of a tangent, really. <laughs> I have two more comments. One, the little handoff of this, the sword ceremony uh-huh. seemed really pompous and unneeded. <laughs> Why do they really need to have this sword thing? And where was this thing being held at? Because it looked like this giant auditorium. That's it's a space actually- station. But it's actually underneath the Enterprise. The Enterprise is, is hanging right above them. So this thing must be huge, and it has an atmosphere, and the Enterprise is just, you know, maybe a few hundred feet above them. It just seemed a little well, unnecessary for a, here's your sword. <laughs> I like how they did it in Star Trek Eleven. I am or relieved. I am relieved. <laughs> yes. That seems more actual than this big sword thing. And then the other thing I really didn't like, and I kind of glossed over it in the summary, was the uh, the living computer thing that the aliens have, and that's why McCoy is able to help Spock fix it. Oh, I thought that whole thing was dumb. Yeah, I mean, I okay, just... Okay, so we're, yeah, we're going yeah, to fix the thing that all these people... You're going to fix their technology. They're obviously more advanced than us, but we're going to fix their technology, which they can't fix themselves. Well, they can't fix because the their lack of radiation is dump them down a little bit so they don't know how to do it. I'm agreeing with you. That was one part of the story that I was just like, I guess you just had to give McCoy something to do. I think a good measure of how good a story is is how well they're able to get the overall story told with a minimal number of plot holes. It's like it's like they they had their drafts and they worked it down to a, a more more defined, more detailed uh, script with good dialogue in there. But there's always this one part of the story that never really uh, would hold water. And and they get to the end of the story writing and it's like, eh, we never could get that right. Oh well, people will accept it. And uh, and though this one has that one, 
I think the final mission has a bunch of those. Yeah, the final mission has them. I didn't think this one. I'm not going to count that that you know the the whole no. living computer thing as a as a as a plot hole. I thought that. No. I mean, I think they were just trying to give McCoy something to do. I'm not buying it. That's one of those things I just have to go with the suspended disbelief personally. Yeah. And just go with it. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Whatever. Well, the only thing the about overall, the, I like the story. Yeah, the so. only thing about the ending that I didn't like was just the the whole, you know, we we would like both of our people to be in peace, and then the aliens are like, we cannot do that. Pause for dramatic <laughs> dramatic effect. effect until we're allowed to apologize to you for our discretions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, really? That <laughs> that's what this whole story. I mean, I love the flashbacks. But I just thought that's that's really all you gotta do. Just I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be friends. Yeah, it's a pad ending, but but oh well. But th- again, that's not what you. That's not what makes that story great. What makes that story great was all the stuff that was able to tie in the original series, uh, the original pilot, Pike, uh, the Cage, to where No Man Has Gone Before, and kind of explain how why some of the crew are there that suddenly disappear after the next couple of episodes or after the first couple of episodes. Right. So anyways, thought it was good. Me too. I like that one. I liked it a little better than the final mission, which is our next one. Alright, so take us into it. I will. Okay, so this is the uh second annual, as Donovan had mentioned, for nineteen eighty six, the creative team. We have writer Matt W. Barr, penciler Dan Jurgens. Inker, Bob Smith. Colorist, Michelle Wolfman. Letterer, Augustin Moss. Editor, Robert Greenberger. Okay, cover shows Kirk, Spock, and the rest of the crew walking single file away from a building. They are carrying duffel bags, apparently containing personal effects. Kirk is turned and saluting something. Looking at the building, it rises uh, and rising your view into the air you can see a jetway that is connecting the building to the Enterprise, the object of Kirk's salute. In bold blocked all-caps lettering uh, is the issue title, The Final Mission. Inside the first page looks like another full-page cover, with McCoy, Kirk, and Spock at the top, the Enterprise in orbit around a cratered moon, but is uh, more likely Talos IV. Inset in the shadow of the planet is Mr. Bighead Telosian, to the left is a nasty-looking Klingon with a detach knife poised at the neck of a wheelchair-bound Captain Pike. The action opens up with a Reliant-class starship named Kobayashi Maru 2. Hmm. Patrolling deep space as it receives a distress call. It's a freighter named the Zachary Taylor. As they approach the freighter, it changes shape and shows itself to truly be a Klingon cruiser and opens fire and destroys the Kobayashi Maru 2 before the captain can complete her command to raise shields. Scene cuts to the Enterprise. And I do mean the Enterprise. No bloody A, C, or D. Where Captain Kirk is at the con waiting, awaiting a message from Starfleet. The message comes telling the captain and the crew that their five-year mission is complete and they are ordered home to Earth. And there was much rejoicing. Scotty gets the okay from Kirk to hold an initiation for the green recruits on board. Spock refers to it as a bacchanal and volunteers to handle the bridge during the ceremony. The Enterprise stops over at Starbase 10 to pick up Commodore Stalker and Commander Will Decker, 
who will be overseeing the refit of the Enterprise. The Commodore is congenial and happy, but Decker appears to be quite dour in all business. When Kirk invites him by his quarters to hear some stories he might like to hear, Decker rudely declines and states that he has heard all the stories about his father that he cares to. Later, Decker is introduced to the crew. Ahura comments on how she likes the standard issue uniform for men and women that Decker is wearing, the new one. She comments how much more she will like it than her current miniskirt uniform. She is the only one. Later that night, the initiation ceremony is going on for Chekhov and other newbies that are returning from their first deep space mission, an ancient tradition that Scotty revels in. Chekhov is first sent into a dark room where he appears to be in open space and confronted confronted by an old bearded wizard complete with a magical staff. Next, Chekhov is confronted by uh, carnelian acid snakes that send him into spasmodic convulsions. Kirk emerges from the old wizard outfit and has Scotty turn off the projections. Chekhov is still convulsing on the ground, but is aided by Kirk and then McCoy. Spock is asked to scan for any foreign energy signatures that might explain the holographic projector problems. The ship is rocked and Kirk is called to the bridge. Spock reports that the ship is surrounded by three Klingon cruisers and that they are in orbit around Talos IV, the only planet in the the known galaxy deemed off-limits under penalty of death by the Federation. If this was a TV show, this is definitely where the commercial would be cut in. The Enterprise is hailed by the Klingons. Turns out Kirk's old nemesis, Koloth, is leading the Klingon contingent who requests that Kirk beam down to find out why they have violated Federation space. For no apparent reason, Koloth requests that Decker accompany Captain Kirk. Maybe he liked Decker's uniform, too. On the surface, McCoy and Scotty end up joining Kirk, too, and are immediately disarmed and taken into the custody by the Klingons. Below the surface, Kirk and company are taken to see Fleet Captain Pike, who is being tortured by the Klingon bastards. You Klingon bastards! The landing party jumps into action, immediately kicking the crap out of the Klingons. Spock removes the pain-giving device from Pike's head and attempts a mind meld to calm him down. But Pike disappears in a flash of light, and the landing party find themselves sinking underwater and asphyxiating. Kirk awakens on the floor of the Telosian cell, facing Vina in her true form. The landing party see that they are chained to the walls and floor of the, of the cell as Vina tells the story of what happened to them. Klingon spies discovered General Order 7's ban on Talos IV and the Klingons figured anything bad for the Federation were good for them. The Klingons came and dominated the Telosians due to their inability to influence the Klingons' hatred-filled emotional minds. Most of the Telosians were killed violently and Pike tortured like a lab rat. Koloth enters the room and explains that that the few remaining Telosians taught their mind control techniques to some of Koloth's men, who taught it to more Klingons, and so on and so on. They intend to take the Enterprise into Federation space where their army of mind control soldiers will conquer. Koloth explains that even now, they are in the minds of the Enterprise crew, 
playing on their deepest fears to destroy them and take over the Enterprise unopposed. After the explanation, Koloth leaves the landing party to the gentle mercies of his man Kamar, who will destroy them by preying on their weaknesses. He starts preying on Spock's half-breed insecurities, even bringing his mother into the mental attack. McCoy, Decker, and Kirk are all likewise attacked with what they fear the most. Kirk is attacked by the memory of Edith Keeler's death, but somehow those memories inspire hatred and strong emotions that broke the illusion. Kirk is so enraged that he beats Kamar to a bloody pulp and, and releases the rest of the landing party. <clears throat> Spock and Decker are assigned to finding the remaining Telosians and free them. Kirk and, Kirk and McCoy head up to the Enterprise using Decker's bracelet communicator that the Klingons stupidly did not recognize as a communications device. Apparently, it has the extra handy feature of being able to remote control the Enterprise's transporters. How convenient! On board the Enterprise, McCoy mixes up a potion that will stimulate the crew's adrenaline production, that will excite their emotions and hopefully break the mind control effects. They pump it through the life support system, and it works. The crew get back to their stations, and Kirk lays a plan to warp out of orbit as a way to deal with the three Klingon heavy cruisers. Back on the planet, Spock and Decker take out some guards and find the sedated Telosians that they bring back to consciousness. The Enterprise powers up the engines, ready to go to warp. The Klingons detect this and make preparations to pursue at max warp. The Enterprise unexpectedly comes about and fires phasers and photon torpedoes at the three warships that still have their shields down preparing to go to warp. The Klingon ships are disabled. Starfleet is contacted and informed of the events. Telosians take control of their Klingon captors. Captain Pike and Vina are restored to their illusions of youth and beauty. The Telosians put the remaining Klingons into an illusion of pastoral peace and beauty, essentially hell for a Klingon. As the Enterprise approaches Earth and Space Dock, for real this time, he gives Decker a pep talk. Kirk gives Decker a pep talk concerning his father. The pleasure of homecoming is mixed with the pain of saying goodbye to all the crew. The second-tier characters say goodbye to Kirk and are beamed off the ship. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock meet to have a goodbye drink. They speak of their plans, Spock to return to Vulcan for the ritual of Kulinar to gain full control over his faculties and overcome his dual heritage issues, McCoy to leave the service and see his daughter, Kirk to be promoted to Admiral and Director of Starfleet Operations on Earth. Kirk ponders his future on the bridge, then beams out as the last man off the ship. The end. A meaty story. Yep. With lots going on. Yeah, so in hindsight, um, I think I even mentioned this in an episode, I think episode four or something, I mentioned how great this issue was, uh, just because I loved how it bridged the original series to the movie series, but in rereading it, it doesn't it's not quite as good as that first one was that we read earlier today. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I think overall it's a, it's a good story, but there are holes in the storyline you can drive a truck through, and I, that that bugs me. It just bugs me. But, you know, suspended disbelief. I got a little bit of my father in me who <laughs> can cannot go with anything. He, <laughs> oh, God, my father is something. Uh, so I got a little bit of him. So it, those plot things that did not ring true to me bugged me a lot as I was reading the story. But, yeah, overall it was good. Yeah, and, and you know, 
I read this years and years ago, so I remembered Pike being a much more active participant in the story. And when we read it, I mean, he really is only there in that one page where he's getting beaten up by the Klingons. Which is, it turns out, not even be him. No, I think, it, I think it is him. They just, they just make I him think disappear. I think, the whole thing's a, I think the whole thing's an illusion. How is, okay, if it isn't an illusion, how do they, unless they're using transporters, how are they making Pike disappear well, he doesn't, in a flash of He doesn't light? disappear. He, he's, he does? No, because uh, Spock's going to do the mind meld, and then in Spock's right. mind, and then he, he disappears turns, in a splash, no, 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 in a no. flash. He turns into fire. And then Spock's like burning while the other crew members are being cool. engulfed by that water. If you look at the the panel on the next page, uh, the page that shows them all in the water, you'll see what's really happening. And you see Kirk, uh, yeah, McCoy, yeah, yeah. and Decker kind of drowning. And then you see Spock yeah. screaming because he's on fire. And then you see Pike well, just kind of lay or with his head down in the in yeah. The and I and I can see you under interpreting it that way, but I interpret it differently. I see Spock going in for the mind meld, and then uh, he 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 uh, flashes and is gone in a flame. And then there's enough time for Spock, uh, for rather McCoy to say to Spock, "What's going on?" And then he says, "I don't know, Bones. Let's try to drag him away." And then the whole, which I, I'll agree that the dragging away kind of defeats what I said in the first place, but it looks like he's disappeared. And then, and then they go and are whooshed into the illusion of being uh, drowned in water. So I don't think uh, Pike was ever there. Uh, I think the whole thing he, was an he, illusion. He is there in that picture, though, where you see, well, where you no. see, <laughs> you see. Kirk. It's called an illusion. It's well, called an illusion. But you see Kirk, you mean you see the Klingon standing there, and then everybody else is laying on the ground, and Pike's sitting there too. I think from the point that he's being tortured, I think that's all an illusion. I don't think there's Klingons there. I don't think they're really torturing him. I uh, I think when they think they're they're beating the Klingons so easily, I think that's all illusion too. And uh, I think it's all illusion. That's my opinion. Uh, no, I, I got it that they were really beating him up, but then they were able to start using the mind control. Kamar, or whatever his name is, started using the mind control to make him drown and make yeah. Spock burn up. Okay. But, uh, okay. So I guess we'll have to agree to disagree there. We will, which is fine. That's cool. But That's anyways, cool. but uh, but I I liked it where it shows... I mean, I don't like it because it's, it's a horrible scene, but it shows the Klingons like just beating on Pike... And then you just see this beep, 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 beep above the, the picture. And then you see the Klingon say, two beeps. He doesn't like what your the neuralizer is doing to him. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Let's do it again. And they're just like hitting him on the head with this like bottle of uh, probably blood wine or something. It's just, it's horrible. It is horrible. But, uh, you know. But the, Basically, the uh, as we will see as we go on through some of our comments, that there are multiple things that are not pussyfooting around. These Klingons are nasty. Yeah, they are. They're, they're some bad dudes. So um, you mentioned the, yeah. the like second cover, kind of the, the extra splash page cover on the mm-hmm. first page. Again, I don't remember them doing that too terribly often, but it, it always reminds me of all those Gold Key ones that we read because every issue of Gold Key started off with a like a secondary cover that kind of gave you another synopsis or another tease on what's going to happen later in the issue. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It's cool. They definitely have some hooks in there that make you want to read. Yeah, so the, it kind of makes me wonder if it's really, that was another cover they were going to use 
but they thought that since it's called the final mission, Kirk saluting the Enterprise was better than, uh, you know, a knife up to Pike's neck. Right. Well, and I think in both cases, the first mission and the final mission, I think the main thrust of both stories is just that. I mean, that's what the titles are. Uh, The final voyage. The first mission. So, the stories that go along with that I think are secondary, even though they're 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 good. I mean, and and actually, I like this story going along with the main point, the main thrust of it, uh, in a lot of ways better, even though it has bigger holes in it. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, the main point is this is the last voyage. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and there's no, and that's what they went with on the cover. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this one, as as opposed to the one that came out, you know, just a year before, this one doesn't have the uh, movie era um, bookends. So it's not a flashback. This is just a, an untold story that they're they're telling, you know, just right. in this one story. Right. I think you don't have to waste all the time trying to build in this prelude and and epilogue. You can just tell a story from beginning to end, just right. in a different era than than what your normal what your mainstream continuity is at that time. But anyways, so that first ship that gets blown up there on page two and three, that's actually a. It looks like a Miranda class, which was the Reliant in Star Trek II, except it has like the old old school uh, nacelles on it. Right. So remember when we were reading the uh, early voyages, and there was that 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 Miranda class ship there, and we thought maybe that was the first time they tried to do a old school version of the of the 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 Reliant type ship. So I guess we were wrong since this came out. 10 years before the early voyages started. Oh. So this might be the first appearance of a old-school type Miranda-class ship. And that's a good point, because uh, I did call it a Reliant-class ship. And a, you are right, it's a Miranda-class. But I I, pro- I, probably, I was probably just mistaken, but I thought I had seen read references in the past about, uh, quote, a Reliant-class ship, but probably not. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, especially during Star Trek II, they didn't have, they didn't really name them like they do now. But I think you're right, because I called it... I, I've seen it Reliant class ship before, too. Okay, so I'm not crazy. Okay, good. No, you're not crazy. But you are... But I, I, I think Miranda class is the right way. Yeah, so according to current continuity, it is called Miranda class. Right. But I think you are right. I think I have seen publications where it's referred to as Reliant class. Yeah. Okay. Just like yeah. the original Enterprise, I've seen it referred to as Starship class... Oh, before yeah, yeah. it became Constitution class. Yeah. And if it was an old reference, that's fine, but it's been a Constitution class for a while. No, this was some stuff that came out like right after the series was canceled, and it, oh. and it was like a, like a blueprint type thing, and it kept saying Starship class Enterprise. Ah. But anyways, I had another comment there on page two, uh, two and three, that, that splash page there. Uh, there on page three, that's, that's Yeoman Rand, isn't it? Talking to Kirk. Oh, uh, right underneath. Uh, look, that's that's the right hairstyle. Yeah, right underneath Kirk's word balloon where it says "Change heading to Mark 375. Right. Yeah, it's the only picture. I don't I don't see her anywhere else. But I thought that was kind of kind of cool. That that's that's cool. I didn't notice that. I did do some. They re- slipped her in there. Yeah, I saw some. I did some research after we talked about her a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. She was only in the first eight episodes of Star Trek. And then uh, she did never showed back up until the motion picture came out. They must have decided to uh, leave the potential of a romance out of it after a little bit of exposure to it. Right. For Kirky. 
Yeah, plus if you're going to start hitting on your yeoman, then that just makes you seem like that oogie boss that nobody wants to work for. (laughs) (laughs) Oogie boss. You know, the one that's like, hey, you mind working some overtime with me this weekend? (laughs) Got to work on some reports. Fine point, fine point. I thought it interesting that they actually have a room in which they project holograms that look realistic to Chekhov. You 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 think that that might be the first appearance of the holodeck? Ah, or uh, it definitely looks an awful lot like a precursor to the holodeck. Yeah. Interestingly enough, in a time period prior to all the movies, and so all the the original cast movies, the, I don't remember them ever mentioning the presence of any kind of a. a a holodeck or a holographic room or anything like that. So interesting they slipped that in here. Yeah, but, uh, but it does have precedent. Yeah, so The Next Generation started in 1987, right? So yeah, this, this right. book came out two years before The Next Gen ever came out. Okay. But in 1974 or 73, the, yeah. while the animated series was on, uh, there was an oh. episode called the practical. You're not. Oh, you're not going to tell me they did that. There was an episode one. called the Practical Joker, and uh-huh. in that episode, they have a holodeck. They call it. No. They call it the recreation room. Uh huh. And when I did a little research on that, I saw, I saw that uh, Gene Roddenberry actually intended intended to introduce a holodeck type room in the third season of the original series, but uh-huh. due to budget constraints. He wasn't able to do it, and then it got canceled before season four. Oh. So they did it in the animated in the series, cartoon. The Practical Joker. And it was kind of the – it was basically your typical holodeck type thing. So they had this um, this holodeck running, this this holographic simulation running, and, and it goes haywire. And, you know, basically it was the holodeck malfunction episode that we see over and over and over again in The Next Gen and Voyager. Yeah. So, yep, I thought you would catch that, and I was ready for <laughs> ready for my answer. Well, you, you, you being a fan of the animated series and me being a very casual watcher, that's, uh, that's good that you catch those things. Yeah, no, cause, and, and the re- reason I caught it is because I watched them after I was already a fan of The Next Generation, and, and when that came on, I was like, wait a minute, this is the original series. They didn't have holodeck back then. <laughs> well, it had to come from somewhere at some point. Yeah, but I, I do like how Gene Roddenberry was wanting to use it for the original series and just couldn't do it due to, you know, the sets and things like that. Right. We kind of skipped over it, but when they were first talking about or when they're heading home and you have McCoy and Kirk eating dinner or lunch or whatever it was, mm-hmm. uh, and McCoy talks about back pay. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a little odd because I can't remember when it's established that Star Trek doesn't have currency, so right. they're. I'm thinking that maybe the first, the first time that's ever mentioned is in Star Trek IV, uh, which came out in 1986. But I might be wrong. Right. But it, the whole thing's a little confused. I mean, definitely uh, by the time Next Gen comes along, no money, yeah, um, except for at Quarks, except for Gold Press Latinum, exactly. So, uh, and another thing is in the original series, didn't they? use credits to pay for the Tribbles? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So, the concept of credits, I have air quotes going right now, does pop up from time to time the original series. Right. So, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, I just thought that was funny. 
It kind of reminded me of, uh, if you remember the original Alien movie that came out in, what, 79? When they first wake up out of uh, cryo sleep before they right. know that they've been woken up early, the the two engineers um, forgot their names. But oh, they right. have that whole conversation about all the back pay they're going to get while the, that they earned while they were sleeping. And then when they find out that they're going to go check this wreck, they start calculating all the hazard pay and everything like that. Hazardous duty pay. And and (laughs) McCoy's comment just was like, is this alien? What the heck? (laughs) But I guess like in any type of military ship, I guess that would kind of be a a big topic of conversation when you're heading home after, you know, year mission or whatever. Right. As long as you do not live in a society that uh, is beyond, beyond money. Because everything's provided for you or something. I don't know. Well, yeah. If you if you have a replicator, then why would you ever need money? Because yeah, you know, all you need is electricity or power or whatever. Yeah, gold pressed latinum. All you have to do is walk up and say, "Computer, may I have a bar <laughs> of gold no, no, pressed latinum?" I, I think there's some issue with trying to replicate um, either latinum or gold. I'm not sure which one. Well, I don't think it's gold which... because in that episode Time Zero, where yeah, Data goes in the past. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't have any uh, currency to be in that poker game. He gives them his communicator, and one of them bites it, bites the golden part. And mm-hmm. he's like, it's gold. And he throws yeah. it on there. So <laughs> I, I was like, well, if everybody's wearing that much gold on them all the time, then then they must have no problems replicating it. That is an interesting, <laughs> that is an interesting argument you make there. <laughs> I would also say that since the technology didn't exist in the 1800s to make anything that even closely resembled gold, that, uh, you know. No, I, I took him at his word. You can have lots it, of things that look gold. like gold. He's, a, he's very okay. knowledgeable in he the is, taste of gold. He is quite gold. an expert. <laughs> he knows what gold tastes like, and he knows when it's good gold, and he said that. Exactly. Good. And uh, <laughs> I've got amazing taste buds. Perhaps you were right. But uh, I just want to point out a few uh, holes, if I may. Please. Number one, how come Kirk and McCoy, how come they're unaffected when they go back to the Enterprise? I mean, isn't there like Klingon thought voodoo going on at the ship? There is indeed. Uh, there is indeed. So when they return to it, I mean, wouldn't you think they get caught up in the whole thought voodoo thing going on there? I don't know. Nope, I have the same note. I, I, I find that really unusual. And, well, all right. so uh, that that's one of them that really bugs me. Uh, another thing that kind of bugs me is, well, this is a minor thing, but the the fact that uh, Decker's bracelet, which was not noticed <laughs> by the Klingons, that's number that, that number one transgression, uh, which seems unlikely, but whatever. And then it just so happens to a remote control feature for the transporter. That's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I, I don't think you could do that even with the uh, com badges on next gen. And besides, wouldn't that be a bit of a security issue? No, they did have something anyway. in the next gen because they would what? a lot of times they would all beam down off of like a runabout or something in in like Deep Space Nine era and there was nobody on the ship anymore and they would just be able to calm the the runabout and it would just beam them up. It'd well, like I also remember type thing. Also on Best of Both Worlds when Data and Worf beam over to the Borg ship and then come back. But, as I recall, didn't Data have some kind of thing on his, sh- on his arm that he activated it with? Yeah, but I mean, but that was actually, there that was actually somebody that wasn't on... Built into the, that wasn't built into the, uh, the com badge. Uh, maybe not for that one, but I know Deep Space Nine, they didn't have any extra arm badges on or anything. Oh. So maybe after that, they realized that they should just make that standard, a standard protocol in all runabouts. 
I don't know. That sounds fine. However, never saw it in 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 Kirk time, Kirk Spock time. But I don't know. It seemed like a a bit of a ooh, my, that's convenient. Kind of something you make up. Kind of like every time uh, James West needed to do something, he'd always have just the right gadget up his sleeve. That's a Wild Wild West reference. Yeah. And another thing is, okay, so if the Telosians couldn't control the Klingons when they first came to the planet, what changed and allowed the Telosians to control them after Spock and Decker freedom? Nope, I had the same note. So yeah, that that was and, that was the big downfall the first time the Klingons showed up and right. they lost, and yet now they're suddenly going to be able to keep this peaceful illusion that they say that the Klingons hate, but right. somehow they're going to be able to maintain it. Yeah, it didn't make sense. Exactly. And then in the end, what are they going to do with them? I mean, they talk about wiping their memory of Talos Four. So are they just going to put them back on their disabled ships? I guess so. Because I didn't get that either. Yeah, because they don't explain what happens to Koloth, because when, when Koloth first shows up, I'm like, hey, they can't really do anything with him because he shows up later in Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, they can't kill yeah. him. So uh, and in regards to that, I mean, the the art there for Koloth, he didn't look anything like William Campbell, who played him in uh, oh, the original series that the guy's Deep Space name? Nine. No, nah, he didn't look like anybody. Because I kept he looking, just, and I'm like, just... I'm like, he doesn't look anything like the Squire of Gothos. Because uh-huh. <laughs> William Campbell played uh, Trelane and Koloth. True. I did true, like true. how he came back and played Koloth in that episode of Deep Space Nine, where he played oh, the old right. Koloth that was going after the uh, the albino. Yeah, I, I thought that was a really good Deep Space Nine episode, but let's not let's not go too far afield. <laughs> I, I like seeing a lot of those old uh, Klingon actors come back for that. Yeah, but anyways, no, totally agree with you. They don't explain what happens to Koloth and the Klingons. And the rest of them. But I tell you, I would not... I I would be taking those ships, baby. <laughs> Disabled Klingon ships? Let's let's take those home. But, oh, another thing that kind of bugged me is, is how... The whole thing about uh, Commander Decker... Mm-hmm. Being disgraced about his father, Captain Decker, Matt Decker, as uh, some kind of crazy villain or something. Yes, Matt Decker. I totally object to that. I mean, he tried to protect his crew. Uh, you know, he he beamed them down to that that one planet so that he thought they'd be safe on, and he stayed on his ship. You know, last captain tradition: stay on your ship even when it sinks. And then he only went crazy after his his crew was was killed when uh, when the machine sliced up the the planet they were on. So it's like. And then in the end, he ends up flying the shuttle into the mall of the thing, hopefully trying to trying to destroy it. I, you know, I don't think that's any. He's a hero. He's there's nothing. Anyway, so I, I think they took that whole thing and then just used it as a BS mechanism to give Commander Decker some issue to overcome. I just I thought it was cheap. Well, I mean, he did go crazy though, didn't he? Oh yeah, he went crazy. But wouldn't you? I mean, look what everything, all the things that 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 guy went through. Yeah, and, but and, in the end. We're talking about the Doomsday Machine, right? The original of course. series? Yeah. Of course. The Doomsday Machine. With the big tube-like monster. Exactly. That looks like a um, an ice cream cone. You know, like a sugar cone? Oh, yeah, it did kind of. Yes, the Doomsday Machine. So, um, yeah. So, he, yeah, he went crazy, but he had a good reason. And in the end, he was able to get it together enough to fly the shuttle into it and explode it. So. Yeah, but I mean, but he didn't... 
he wasn't able to destroy it with the shuttle, though, right? That was, oh, no, not at all. gave Kirk the idea gave... to send in the exactly. constitu- constellation exactly. ship. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I didn't say that. Yeah, no, I just I, said I'm he got it to, together enough to do that. I'm trying to remember myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, anyway, I agree. I, 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 I thought it was kind of... I thought it was, uh, 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 you know, taking a piece of what happened in the past, which I like when they do that, and it, and, and it holds water to make sense. I just didn't think it was very good uh, in this case. But I think they're just building off of some dialogue that was in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Because I think in really? Star Trek The Motion Picture, he... They made, had a reference? They make a comment that Matt Stecker's dad was uh, disgraced or something. I know that they mention it, because... Wow. I'm, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. I did not connect the dots and understand that Commander Decker was Matt Decker's son. Yeah. I had no idea about that. I just thought, okay, you're throwing names around, fine. You keep on you reusing the same names a lot. Okay, fine. There you go. Decker. I'm okay. pretty sure they do. Okay, cool. Well, of all the Star Trek episodes, or movies rather, five is the least watched movie in my book, but a real close second is uh, the motion picture. Right. right. It could be in there. I just don't remember it. I'm sure it was. Uh, I might be reading into it because I've read so much other Expanded Universe stuff that I sometimes get stuff mixed up. Maybe it was in that Marvel comic, and and I'm remembering that. Right. Oh, let's see. What else? So speaking Uh, of the Marvel comic, just real quick, uh, in issue number five, the, the haunting on the Enterprise, you remember that one? Where the Klingons had that dream machine and was projecting oh, right. all that. Isn't that kind of what these these Klingons are doing? I mean, they're not they're not projecting Dracula, but they're projecting <laughs> all these weird images and, and stuff. Uh, and a haunted mansion. In order to be able to take over the ship. Right. And and all their little flashbacks and stuff, like Ahura getting her face burned off and Sulu being in a concentration camp during World War Two. All that right. kind of reminded me of what Sabok did in Star Trek V? Completely. Yeah, and I got a note about that. Oh, sorry. Because the... Oh, no, no, don't be sorry. So, uh, it's interesting comparing and contrasting the mental attacks on McCoy in this issue compared to the way they got at him in, the, in Star Trek V, which was his father. In, Star, in the case of Star Trek V, in the case of this comic, it is um, him allowing his daughter to die. While he's gallivanting across the uh, the cosmos. Yeah, but the big difference is that in Star Trek V, that really happened, and here it didn't happen. He just thinks that it could have happened because he was never there. True. He's got the daughter. The daughter's in college. We find out. Well, she's um, graduated as so, the beginning of their five-year mission. Okay, but the main point is she does exist. Yep. She did not die die when she was a child or something like that, which they're insinuating uh, with the. With the voodoo going on, it's an interesting to compare the two approaches. I agree with you 100. percent And I really liked how they brought back uh, Edith Keeler. Yeah, yeah. Yes, me too. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And the art, she really looks like um, um, Joan Collins. Joan Collins there on she does that it, page it right before good. she gets run over when she's basically saying, right. "You could have saved me, but your too your precious history was just too important and must be preserved. So I must stand here and get killed." I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I mean, but she is giving him. I mean, that is almost exactly what she says because she's basically saying, yeah. "You could have saved me, but you chose not to." Right. Uh, which I thought was cool because I mean, that is something that that he really regrets having to do. Yeah, and interesting 
interesting how uh, in the movie we never find out what Kirk's problem is, what Kirk's weakness is. In Star Trek, but five. we do in Star Trek Five. Uh, but we do find out what it is here, and of course, this comic book came out before the movie came out. Oh yeah, this comic book came out before yeah. Star Trek Four came out. Exactly. So interesting to see where some of the movie ideas come from. I mean, I assume the movie idea came from this as opposed to coming from, like, nowhere. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it came from this, because, I mean, the movie was written by William Shatner. I kind of doubt he ah! was reading this ah! comic book. <laughs> William Shatner and others. Right. And really, in the end, how much of it was truly written by William Shatner? Huh? I don't know. But I did like how the whole uh, Amanda was Vulcan in in his flashback, in, in Spike's right. flashback. Yep. I mean, that kind of ties in with even in Star Trek Five and in the new movie a little bit where um you know what like the first thing that, that Sarek says when Spock's born is he's too human. And in one of the deleted scenes in the two thousand nine movie there's like a a scene where the baby's standing or in Amanda's arms and she's kinda of playing with his, his ears because they're kinda of folding in on each other on itself. And he makes a comment that I think she makes a comment that he has her ears or something uh. like that. Or no. Uh. He says that Spock reminds him of Amanda, and then Amanda's like, yeah, but he has your ears, and kind of unfolds his ears. At least that was in the book. I'm assuming they actually filmed it. but, but... I don't remember it, but cool. Anyways. Well, you know, another thing, uh, Star Trek V, uh, when Sarek is saying, too human, that actually the actor playing Sarek as a younger man is somebody I went to school with. No way. John Simpson. That's right. Huh. Did I ever tell you that before? You never did. Apparently not. So I'm sitting there in Montreal. I'll try to be quick with this. Or, no, it was probably Toronto. Uh, looking at, at, at Star Trek V for the first time. And I'm watching the movie, and it's like, it comes to that part, and it's like, I'm looking at it going, whoa, whoa, that looks like John Simpson. Oh, and Sarek is a young man. But that looks like John Simpson. And sure enough, looked at the credits. John Simpson. Actually, it was I think it was Jonathan Simpson or something like that. That's amazing. So is this somebody you went to high school with or yeah. or college? So it was high school. High school. Wow. Yeah. That's and awesome. He was like, he was like in, in the school plays and stuff like that. And, you know, he gave the great hee-ho to go out to become a, uh, a uh, an actor and a movie star or whatever. So, and that was his, uh, <laughs> that's the only thing I really ever saw him in. But anyway, uh, he did a great job. Very short part. And uh, he was telling me one time years later about, very briefly, about some of his experiences on set and stuff. Yeah. So. Did he get to meet, or I mean, obviously he met Shatner since. Oh, yeah. He, he was directed by, by Shatner. So, yeah, I, uh, John was more of a Monty Python fan than anything. But uh, he, he was in Star Trek, too, so he was saying it was, was really cool. Anyway. Uh, the only thing I had was, I agree with everything you've said so far, but the one thing you didn't mention, which I... I assuming you might have the same problem, is that the Klingons were able to learn how to use the Telosians' powers. Oh, oh, and, and I'm like, yes. it's not it's not space voodoo where you just drink a potion and you can do it, <laughs> as we saw in the Gold Key comic number seven. I mean, the Telosians were able to do it because they were, I mean, they were bred generation look after at, generation. Not only that, look at the Look at the heads. <laughs> but not only look that, at the bloody heads. But it's a it's an evolution. I mean, they said it in in the cage that this was huh. they're like this because of evolution. Yeah, and but they're that, and they, you know they they built up their mental powers instead of building up like technology around them. 
Yeah, I agree. But I will say this. There is a part, I am not trying to forgive (laughs) this particular uh, plot hole where supposedly the Klingons can just learn how to control people's minds, uh, which I I completely agree with your comment. But there is a part where the Tloshians said, eventually, in response to Pike saying, maybe some form of trade. And then uh, Tloshians say, no, Captain. You know, eventually you would learn our powers of uh, mental manipulation and you would find this you would go down the same path we went down so there was a little bit of thing there you know learning our mental powers but i think that was talking about something that would happen over hundreds and maybe even thousands of years right and that was in the cage or that was i was in the cage okay so towards the end when uh when they're all you know kind of friends whatever right and uh they're going to let them go so you think that's justification for the Klingons being able to learn how to do it? <laughs> like I said. <laughs> well, no. No, it's not it's not justification, but it is one small little grain you could look at or idea you could look at in the original series that uh they that they might have looked at and said, "Ah, oh, well, well, maybe the Klingons could do it." Yeah. Like like in a week. And I mean, and the last comment I have on this in is the Klingons are very James Bondian villainish here mm-hmm. that they sit there and explain their whole their whole nah. thing <laughs> how we can control your minds or we can control everybody's minds but we're all going to leave and just leave this <laughs> one guy here to guard you exactly and... we're going to complete we're not going to pay attention to what happens we're just going to go off cuz we know this guy'll do the exactly. job exactly Kamar will be able to do it. The rest of us are going to be gone. So whatever you do, don't take him out. Because exactly. if you do, you'll be able to unravel our whole plan, which is very evil. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's like it's like in the uh, the second Austin Powers movie when uh, Seth Green is saying, "No, you, why do you keep doing that? Leaving him in a room with one guard." Pop a cap in his head. Get him out of the way now. No. Yeah, yeah. They ha- and then was the sharks with the lasers, was that the first one? Oh, yeah. that I think that was the second one. Oh, that was the same thing. We're gonna, I think it was the second one. We're going to yeah. lower you into this shark field, sharks with lasers, while we leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. That was great. But, I mean, but they did the same thing here, which... Yeah. But when he takes out Kamar, I mean, that is a brutal fight. Brutal I mean, and it pummeling. seems like a really one-sided fight, but... Yeah, I mean he's just smashing Kamar's face into the into the ground, and you see teeth flying out and yep. blood. Yeah, pretty cool, like, dude. Well, this issue in general, I mean they're not. I mean they got they got tortured Pike in a wheelchair. Yeah, they got the Klingon absolutely smashed to bits. I mean there's multiple well, places even, where there's even some violent a, stuff. Yeah, Ahura gets tortured too. I mean her dream oh, is right. that she's like bound to some table, and some alien is pressing this burning hot mask onto her face and you see it just yep. like blistering and sticking to her face while she's screaming ah. yep that was the worst one yeah I mean Sulu was pretty badly uh, screwed around with too and Scotty's was like eh so you you, for, you couldn't figure out anything good for Scotty okay well the other ones were okay <laughs> did did you like Scotty is now sporting the mustache the, the pike mustache <laughs> Yeah, it's fine because we've seen it before, uh, you know, in the movies. Yeah, yeah, no, the mustache no. before. Yeah, that was a good tie-in, and and uh, this was made before that Pike comic where he had the mustache last week. Right. I just thought it was funny. I was like, "Hey, you have Pike's mustache." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, graying in the temples. Yeah, I like that. 
Yeah. Uh, also, I think that uh, Chekhov looks nothing like Chekhov. Um, so I, how he is drawn, I don't think he looks anything like Walter Koning. You don't think so? No, I, I don't. I mean, he's not in it a lot. No, he's not in it a lot. But I mean, and that, I don't think he looks anything like him. That last page, I thought he looked pretty close. Where there? The last page? Okay, I'm looking at the last page. No, it's not the last page. I'm looking at it's. It's near the end. Looking at the page where they're talking to the, the Telosians. Right, and the Telosians on the view screen, and then you see Pike. Yeah, with you know. Nina. Right. You think that looks like Walter Koenig? Uh, I, yeah? I don't think so. With the with the uh, Davy Jones wig? Yeah. Davy Jones wig. Looks just like he's, him. He's got great looking hair. I just don't remember Chekhov ever having that full and, and natural and free looking hair. Uh, I think he did. I don't think so. And I don't think his face looks right either. But whatever. My right. comment. On the on the opposite page there, you see an advertisement for Superman the Man of Steel. I see that. And that's the reboot that I was telling you about that happened uh, to Superman in the 80s. And you'll cool. see that it was written and drawn by John Byrne. John Byrne. Who we've been Very doing nice. a lot of uh, a lot of his Star Trek stuff here lately. Cool. All right. That's really all I have for this, this issue. You have anything else? I have nothing else except that uh, a bit of another fond farewell to uh, Captain Pike. Yep, so this is the last time we will see a certain captain in comic book history. <sighs> and it's not Pike. Yes, I'm talking about Captain Decker. Oh, Decker? Yeah. Yeah, I thought for a second you were you were talking about Captain Hale. Uh, or not Captain Hale. The, the captain of the um, of the Miranda-class ship that got blown to bits. Oh, yeah, no, I don't count that person. No, I'm talking about Decker, because he was in the first. Looks kind of. He was kind of cute. He was. Oh, in... we didn't say anything about the Kobayashi Maru too. Oh yeah. Well, well I guess it's kind of obvious, but. Yeah, that's true. The Miranda class that that got blown up at the beginning. Yep. Name them the Kobayashi Maru too. Yeah. So, anyways, like I was trying to say, this is the last appearance that we will be covering of Captain Decker, even though they only they called him Commander in here, which I don't I didn't understand, because I thought he was Captain, but. Maybe well, he, it's early. In, it's earlier in time. Yeah, right? maybe he becomes captain closer to After the, the refit, closer to the finish of the refit. But right. Also, during the refit, didn't more time go by? Yeah. What do you mean from the time of the I mean, story okay. and the refit? So, so they leave. So they leave the Enterprise. Okay. A lot of stuff. Okay. So, okay. So the last uh, episode in the third season, and then the uh, the first movie. A lot of time transpired. I guess. It seemed that um, maybe more time had gone by when Decker first came into the picture doing the re- re- refit, and then when the first movie happened. Yeah. But uh, maybe not. Well, uh, I think only like three years is supposed to happen after the end of their five-year mission, and then the, the motion picture. I think there's only supposed to be like three years in between there. So it took Kirk three years to get sick of being a, an admiral and want to get back on the ship. Right, and it took th- Spock three years to. Colonar thing. Yeah. Oh, that's another thing. But yeah, this 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 time frame here, these three years in between the the end of the series and the beginning of the motion picture. Uh, there's a lot of novels called the Lost Years um, that kind of deal in with 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 things that are going on in those three years. So it, it yeah. talks about you know what what Spock's doing, what's Kirk doing, and things like that. So yeah, I think it's only supposed to be about three years. Cool. Three years. Okay. All right, so that being said, last thing uh, we should talk about is next episode. 
which we're going to episode 24 go into the motion picture era so this kind of led into Star Trek the motion picture we've already read a couple issues that in between the motion picture and Star Trek 2 so we're going to go ahead and finish out that timeline which we'll be reading uh, continuing the Marvel series uh, that came out in the early 80s uh, also a Marvel series of uh, called the Untold Voyages uh, that was coming out around the times that Early Voyages was coming out and the comic strip that was coming out in the newspapers around the same time as uh, the motion picture came out, so starting in 1979. So next week we're reading first storyline of the newspaper strips and the first issue of the Marvel uh, Star Trek Untold Voyages. Yes, that's what's on schedule. Plus the Happy Meals, <laughs> the Happy Meal strip. <laughs> yeah, so on. Because uh, I, I don't, I don't want people to miss that. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to that because, like I said before, my earliest experience with Star Trek was, I remember getting some Star Trek Happy Meal toys back when the motion picture came out, and that included a little comic strip that was on this little plastic uh, armband that was similar to the the communicator and in it you would have this little comic strip that you would kind of feed through and then you would get this little window to see what the the panel was that you're reading i mean they're really short each each story was like five or six panels long but uh i was able to find those so we're gonna review those really quickly and then we're gonna do the the two other ones okay it's gonna be great ken you're gonna love it it's gonna be great you're gonna gonna be great all right so uh we don't uh, since these were um, um annuals and we don't know when they came out. There's no uh, what else is going on in Star Trek type thing. So until then, so we'll see you next week. Yes, and uh, happy Thanksgiving for everybody. Well, yeah. Because oh, tomorrow's Thanksgiving for us, but I'm sure by the time you listen to this, oh, it's going to probably be well into 2011. But uh, anyway, from, you know, from those of us going to experience a little turkey tomorrow, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.